0: Welcome to Full Comment with Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us. Canadians are currently dealing with the most significant upheaval we have collectively faced throughout our lifetimes. For over a year now we've been grappling with a new emerging virus and with the various restrictions and lockdowns that officials enacted in response. Are we making the right choices? What if some of them are the wrong choices? What if we're doing things wrong? What do we do now? Is it too late to change paths? What are some of the issues that we should be discussing that we should be focusing on right now? I know we can really get lost in the details discussing COVID-19, you know, should we have stores open at 10% capacity or 25% capacity? What age group should be allowed to access this or that vaccine on this or that week? But I wanted to step back a bit from that and take a bird's eye view look at what we've been doing in Canada throughout the course of the pandemic. And I think our guest today is the perfect person to help us with just that. Dr. Jennifer Grant is a medical microbiologist and infectious diseases physician in Vancouver. She's a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Grant, hello, welcome.
1: Hello, uh, thanks very much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us on the program, Jen. You're just a a great person to have take a look at this issue here, of course, this, you know, huge thing that's been changing our lives for the past year from your perspective as an infectious diseases physician. And and I want you to start uh, really at the beginning and before the beginning in terms of what your community uh, persons who are, who are experts in infectious diseases, were kind of expecting in terms of pandemics, what you thought would happen, when you thought it would happen. You know, prior to, prior to February 2020 or January 2020, whenever things really hit the fan in Wuhan, what was your professional perspective on, on pandemics and, and what we were to expect?
1: so pandemics are much like death and taxes it's not a question of if it's a question of when
0: Mm.
1: and we've seen that uh, multiple times even in our our lifetimes Um, certainly in my career the hiv pandemic um, was sort of our first taste of that we know that influenza pandemics are an inevitability and that we see them every 20 to 40 years of varying severities And we had had a hint of the potential for coronavirus with both SARS uh, coronavirus and MERS coronavirus, which for whatever biological reason decided to stay relatively geographically restricted. But anyone who knows anything about infectious disease knows that the next pandemic is inevitable.
0: What components of what we're seeing right now uh, surprised you in terms of this, or, or is it such that anything was always possible and and and, and nothing is a surprise in terms of uh, the way this is rolled out in its sort of medical sense?
1: I think the big surprise about SARS-CoV-2 um, was it's almost perfection, if you wanna use that word, in terms of its adaption to doing exactly what it's doing. So if you're a virus, um, We'll put ourselves into the heads of a virus, you want to be, in fact, if you, if you really want to be completely non-pathogenic. Um, but the viruses that we're going to care about want to be sufficiently non-pathogenic that they can be carried about the community by unknowing hosts and spread to other people. Um, and that requires that you don't kill your host immediately. So if you look at the other coronaviruses like um, the MERS-CoV or the uh, SARS-CoV-1, they are very pathogenic, and they kill their hosts if they're going to kill them quite quickly, and they give severe symptoms for those people who get sick. So the the, the surprise with this virus, I think, was just how exactly in the sweet spot it was to get out unnoticed um, until it was able to cause quite a bit of disease very widespread before being identified
0: there was a lot of confusion earlier on about just you know how bad is this virus who's getting hard hit by it and so forth although i know some people have countered with no we actually did really know all along it was just sort of media coverage the way information was you know making its way down through the line i I mean what what did we first think we were dealing with There, there was a lot of Definitely when it comes to media and social media, those those famous videos from Wuhan of people literally dropping dead in the streets or, or falling over uh, in hospital hallways and so forth, you know, clinging on to themselves. It's still unknown whether those were, in fact, uh, videos related to coronavirus or just repurposed things from TV shows or whatnot, but that was kind of the stuff uh, that did the rounds there. Uh, And a lot of people thought that is what we would be dealing with in a very acute sense here in Canada. Of course, what materialized was was very different. What what was going on in those early kind of months where there was a lot of confusion?
1: So a lot of that um, confusion is natural at the very beginning of a uh, pandemic. What we usually see as pandemics start are the extreme cases. That's what twigs our attention. So if you think about um, the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, it came across initially for the first few cases that were identified in Mexico as being extremely severe. What we learned afterwards as we did more testing, as we saw the broader view of the virus is the um, mortality rate went down. We saw that um, with this virus as well, when we first started getting notification, it seemed to be matching SARS-CoV-1. The mortality rate was around six or 7% of the identified cases. And that was actually quite worrisome and it looked like it was gonna be the very same thing again. But the natural history of these things is that once you've identified those very uh, severe um, clusters of people who twig your attention, when you do the broader look, you realize that, in fact, um, there's a much broader spectrum of disease, much of what has which has gone unnoticed, um, and, and that over the next several months, you get to a more realistic um, assessment of what the um, viral pathology is um, likely to, to really be. Um, in, in the case of this virus, I, I don't know that we are there yet as we are sort of understanding um, how many people through serial surveys and whatnot have been unknowingly infected.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that because right now we are, of course, hyper attentive to the idea of, you know, just, you know, wear your mask, keep away from anyone in the grocery store. And then we're going to have apps to alert us if we were close to anyone who, you know, tested positive regardless of symptoms and so forth. But to your point back, you know, over a year ago, it was just what are the most extreme cases to what degree was the virus actually circulating around society? And I know there continue to be studies and, and sort of lab work and so forth done to determine just how how great a volume of people actually have these antibodies did it actually come to the west coast much earlier than we thought what's your current perspective on all of that when uh coronavirus actually hit canada hit north america you know do a whole lot more people have it than than we say right now i mean obviously it stands to reason obviously it's it's more than the official numbers but just how much more
1: so the the quick answer to that is nobody knows (laughs) Um, and So I'm going to break that question down because there's quite a few questions in there. Right. In terms of timing, they've actually gone and looked at wastewater samples historically, and it seems like um, the, uh, the um, SARS-CoV-2 was probably much wider spread than originally thought, even in December of 20, uh, 2019. And, and it may be that, in fact, the Wuhan um, area was the first major detected super spreader event rather than necessarily being the origin. Hmm. We'll probably never truly know that. We'll never know if somebody who happened to transit through Wuhan ended up somewhere else in the world. Well, to a certain extent, it kind of doesn't matter. We are where we are right now. Um, And it was undoubtedly much wider spread at the time that it was identified in Wuhan um, than was initially thought. We, Again, just masquerading as your common garden variety,
0: right. a cold or a flu virus. Jen, we had this period in the spring of 2020 where the virus was most acutely spreading and also having the worst outcomes in long-term care homes. and And that was a period where obviously there was no vaccine at all but there also really wasn't much treatment at that point i'll embarrass myself if i try and list the names of the the actual drugs that uh people in your profession have figured out are the ones to uh to actually do a really good job helping people deal with coronavirus when they're hospitalized with it but but there was a couple months there where i I feel like it was probably pretty i don't know if scary is the right term but kind of uncertain terrain in terms of just you know what's really going to happen here i'm thinking you know i guess april may 2020 what was going on during that period
1: I think that was probably the scariest time for everybody because we were dealing with a number of unknown variables. We didn't know what the mortality rate was or wasn't. Uh, we we didn't have a a hundred percent clear handle on nature of spread. Uh, we had all sorts of unexplained cases that we now probably can explain with the knowledge that it was much more widespread than originally thought. But at the time we didn't know, so it seemed like the cases were cropping out of nowhere. Uh, that was a time when we started um, looking at mathematical models that were based on the, again, information that it was natural at the time to have had, um, but with a with a much higher mortality um, than is probably correct. And without sort of stratifying um, the different risks per age, which would have given a much more um, sophisticated understanding of what was likely to happen. At that point, um, we went into planning mode, which is completely appropriate and prepared for the worst case scenario. Uh, It turns out that that did not, at least in in my jurisdiction, develop as expected. Um, And so um, then we had to sort of take a step back and, and rethink the approach.
0: Now, uh, that's a really interesting period where we went into first lockdown, shut everything down. We don't know what this is. We don't know how it spreads. We don't know who dies from it and so forth. And then, and I appreciate that a lot of people were really nervous at that point in time. And then we learned a bit more. uh, You and your colleagues in in the profession learned about treatments, learning who's getting it and so forth. And we had a bit of a summer in Canada. And I think some people were able to enjoy some times there. And then we hit into the second wave and a second lockdown. And here, where I am in Ontario. We're now in a third lockdown. And I feel like things started to change a bit in terms of how we talk about the virus, how the information gets out there. And I think a lot of a lot of public frustration and anxiety and, and confusion really set in. What, what do you think really happened after we sort of grabbed our bearings? And, and to your point, things in your jurisdiction, and I believe pretty much in most jurisdictions didn't turn out as bad as was what first feared but it kind of feels like we're doing the same response right now than we did then.
1: So to, to understand the, the, the full nature of that, you need um, probably a social psychologist rather than an infectious diseases <laughs> specialist. Uh, I, I think there's a number of themes uh, going on. Um, I do put a fair amount of blame on the nature of social media. Hmm. It, There has been, um, from my observation, the sort of rational um, medical response, um, which admittedly does not make great headlines um, talking about how we know actually a fair amount, how we know um, what we can do to mitigate risk. Um, Unfortunately, um, that does not get as much attention, clicks, playtime, as do the more sensational points of view because of the nature of our psychology as people. And so I, I feel like this is the pandemic that Twitter is driving and it gets to a point where public officials can't, um, I don't want to say can't, that, that's not, it's unfair to say they can't manage, but they're, in a, they're, they're put in a position where what they're saying is not perceived as being credible. And so they have to change their message despite the science, uh, to um, placate the the Twitterverse.
0: Yeah, I I found it interesting that, you know, initially, a lot of public health communications are about making sure people take this seriously. So even if they're not sure if this or that intervention is gonna work. Well, let's do all we can to take it seriously, take our precautions and so forth. But I, I think one of the consequences of that was it led people to believe that things were risk factors that weren't risk factors. Like I, I feel like there are many millions of of people in Canada who would believe that anybody can get coronavirus at any time in any setting and anybody can have a serious outcome and be hospitalized and die of it. And obviously I know there's a you know one in however many millions odds where I guess, you know, every scenario is conceivably possible. But generally speaking, correct me if I'm mistaken, that is not the case, that we have a lot of information about things that are safe, unsafe, people who are high risk, people who are not high risk, and so forth. But I feel like that that doesn't get communicated, perhaps for just what you're saying, because it doesn't fit in a tweet.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and certainly um, speaking to um, my relatives who are elderly, they are absolutely convinced that if they get the coronavirus, they will die. Now, their risk is much higher than I'm sure they would like it to be. So for a community dwelling elder, the risk is somewhere between 2.5 and 5% of death once you uh, contract the the disease, um, unvaccinated. Uh, But again, that's a much higher risk than you'd like, but you have a 95 to 97.5% chance of doing well. So I I think that we've gone from a, a subtle um, nuanced discussion about risk, to an absolute black and white, you either die or you, you don't, which is which is probably incorrect. Looking at our population structure, um, and this is true actually also of SARS and uh, the SARS-1 and MERS-CoV, young people are generally speaking at incredibly low risk. Um, certainly at lower risk than many of the other risks we take in day-to-day living such as driving a car, which is probably the highest risk um, for any of us under the age of about 50.
0: Dr. Jennifer Grant is our guest, a medical microbiologist and infectious diseases physician in Vancouver and a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Facebook recently updated their policies for what classifies as misinformation and things that you're not tolerated to discuss on Facebook and posts will be removed and so forth. And, and one of them, they said, uh, posts that that downplay the severity of the virus for instance saying it's just the flu or that call into question the official death tally and i read that and i thought well we have a bit of a problem on our hands because i appreciate that in older age cohorts yes coronavirus is definitely more serious uh than the flu but we've got uh, pediatric experts and, and and experts such as yourself Jen, who are saying, well, actually influenza is more serious in children. So there's, you know, one of those Facebook red flags and then saying, oh, the death count is, you know, not what it is and so forth. Well, we've got Statistics Canada saying that about 10% of coronavirus deaths uh, were people who who died of something else like cancer, but had coronavirus at the time. So, okay, I know they're not doing, you know, full-blown conspiracy theory talk at Statistics Canada, but the facts they're presenting, the nuance seem to, you know, cause trouble with what Facebook is putting as their rules, you know, to your point about how a lot of this, this this online discussion is almost getting in the way of a more nuanced conversation.
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, and I would say that it's if you can't question facts, th- there's a problem if you can back those facts up with data. Now, obviously, people say all sorts of things online um, that are clearly wrong. Right. Um, and, and so there has to be a balance in there. But it's very problematic. The the degree of power that Facebook has in that is problematic. Um, And the um, inability to have a nuanced discussion um, is also problematic. Although I would put to the universe that possibly Facebook is not the place to be having nuanced discussions.
0: Right. Fair enough. Uh, Going back to the kids' conversation and and to your point, some people very resistant, very adamant to say, no, no, kids are you know, they're, they're still getting it, or kids are the secret super spreaders and so forth. Uh, in Ontario, where I am, they've closed the schools again for the third wave, and the justification, they acknowledge that children uh, themselves are, are not actually spreading the virus in classroom, there's no in-class transmission going on, but they've said, well, you know, there's community spread, so we, we have to close the schools because of that, and also mobility issues, something that they talk about... I'd say sort of below the fold they don't talk about it as their top lines in the press conference but they get into it 20 minutes into it saying well we got these mobility charts these anonymized cell phone data that show us people are driving around like it's not pandemic time so we got to get those numbers down they've learned that closing the schools is a good way uh, to keep parents at home to bring that mobility data down do you think that any of that broader community spread uh, mobility data are, are those justifications to close schools during this situation
1: So um, I would say no. I would say that there is no justification for closing schools until you can show that it's more harmful to the children themselves um, to be in school. The problem is that cell phones, as far as I'm aware, don't spread coronavirus. Um, People are mobile for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, And... until you can show the direct line of children in school being the, the, the cause of spread, you're just using children um, as victims and a strategy um, that might be better done in some other way. Um, the, what we're doing to our children right now is, um, in my opinion, appalling. Um, we need to care for our children, which includes taking care of their mental, physical, and spiritual health, their economic health, and frankly, their physical health. Children are far more at risk from self-harm than they are from the coronavirus.
0: Well, well, if I can throw back at you a line that gets thrown back at me, uh, one of those snarky Twitter lines, people say, oh, well, that's all well and good, but uh, try telling one of those children why their grandparents have died or why mom or dad died or why their grandparents died because they brought the coronavirus back to them from school. What would you say to people who, who based on my Twitter feed, uh, there's a lot of people who like to say that?
1: Um, what I'd like to say is not appropriate. Fair enough. Um, so, um, I-, I think we really need to have a conversation about who is to blame for a virus. A virus is a virus. It's not a child's fault if they got a virus. It's not a child's fault that somebody else got a virus. And we know that children are the least likely to spread disease they are far more likely to have got it in the community and in fact um i from personal conversations i've had with various public health officials the risk of a child spreading is substantially less than one percent so i would ask that person really are you sure the grandparent got it from that child um because directionality is incredibly hard to prove so on the one hand, we shouldn't, how can you blame children for happening to have a virus? That's just, that's nonsensical to me. Um, we, we don't blame the adults who gave it to the kids. So why would we blame in the other direction? It's it just, it's, it's a false morality. Um, it's scientifically incorrect. Um, and it is just so unfair to put that on children.
0: There's been a little bit of an emphasis on health officials on attempting to quantify sort of direct harms of lockdowns vis-a-vis a uh, a spike in in overdoses. I know in BC there's been a lot of uh, looking into that data, suicide rates and so forth, uh, deferred surgeries that have resulted in cancers and so forth, and cardiac issues. Uh, But I know there has not been anywhere in Canada a more formal cost-benefit analysis that takes into effect uh, various things related to children and what we call quality-adjusted life years, sort of stunted growth, uh, how education held back even people who've said you know i'm in university but i'm in crisis now because life is a mess in university so i'm dropping out and so forth and what that means for society what that means for that young person how do we begin to robustly talk about this stuff because i feel like a lot of people are, are really at the sort of cover the eyes plug the ears, see no evil hear no evil kind of stuff
1: yeah, It's really challenging. The, the problem is we can't quantify it now because those are harms that will be felt over the next 20 to 30 years in many cases. Right. Obviously, s- suicides can be identified. And um, I believe as Las Vegas opened their school system because children were dying from suicide. Uh, so, so there are some of those harms that be, can be quantified, but a lot of them can't be. And a lot of them will be born out of the next 30 years. Now there are some places trying to do that. Um, so um, the OECD has a publication out, um, as does Simon Fraser University, looking at the likely economic consequences for the kids. Uh, for the they essentially quantify it by um, future earnings lost per day of education lost, or something along those lines. Um, and it's enormous. And for those people who say, well, yes, but it's, that's money and we're talking about health. The truth is that wealth and health are so tightly linked um, that we actually have the science of the uh, social determinants of health. So if you uh, have more income, you can have better food, you can exercise, you have better housing, um, you engage in medical care more, all of those things makes you healthier. Having, not having those things makes you die earlier. Um, people are also trying to quantify the number of children lost to the education system and it's enormous i saw a newspaper article saying that they're laying teachers off they've lost so many kids these are kids who are not completing their education with a lower level of education not only do you have lower economic output but you end up with poorer health over the uh, course of your lifetime so people are trying to do it here and there there is um in bc um, to the credit of my colleagues, they have the unintended consequences group, and they are trying to pull those data together. Um, but again, you can't pull future data together. That's, that's going to come in, in 10 to 15 years.
0: Dr. Grant, correct me if I'm mistaken, but in, in infectious disease circles, epidemiological circles, uh, public health community, prior to Wuhan entering lockdown, this idea of shut everything down for a prolonged period of time is is not really a thing i mean i've, I've read the various pandemic preparedness plans that, that all levels of government have put together and there's not really any discussion of this it's about you know protecting people minimizing illness to allow for the proper functioning of society how how are we i, I don't even know how to a- ask the question because whenever i try to say it it kind of boggles the mind that i even have to ask the question but how did we get to this point
1: i i don't know You're right. Every pandemic plan we've looked at has, uh, that we've written and ours was written in 2018 and it's still up on our website. so I'm sure you've, you've seen it. It basically says we don't close schools because closing schools, even if and this, and this was written for influenza, which children are known to spread. Um, we don't close schools because the harms to children are so high. No, we don't close businesses because people need that to work. I, I don't, understand how the narrative moved to shutting everything down is the best thing to do now is the is, is there some benefit to it there probably is um but there needs to be a discussion about balancing harms and benefits and and that's the dialogue that seems to have gone missing um at a societal level you're 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 bad if you don't want more shutdown. right um, and, and you know, some of that is probably fair. We, we No one's saying, let her rip. What we're saying is, that's fine, but let's find the sweet spot where we maximize everybody's health.
0: There's a perspective out there, dare I say, maybe an ideology, I don't know what to call it, called COVID zero, which is something that I guess they've been working on achieving in New Zealand and perhaps in Australia. And there are definitely adherents of it uh, here in Canada. It has a spiffy logo and, and, you know, a mission statement and so forth. And the basic idea is uh, aggressive suppression of the virus until you get to near zero new daily cases. There's one document I read that said, I think Canada uh, has to stay in some form of restriction until 40 cases uh, per day, which is about, you know, one per million and so forth. I'm kind of confused by that whether or not it's even something we should aspire to whether it's even possible if you know my understanding is that this is becoming an endemic illness meaning it, it is going to be around for the rest of my natural life to some degree or another yet i do feel that idea has taken hold in in you know persons in the medical community public health community and also just a lot of members of the public who hear it and think that that is an attractive idea getting you know a complete elimination of coronavirus
1: oh it's a very attractive idea wouldn't that be nice um I mean, if we could do it um, with, you know, at an acceptable cost, I think it would be a wonderful thing to do. Uh, the, the problem is that the at this point, the, the costs would be, and, I, and costs I don't mean financial, I mean, in terms of uh, health, uh, societal cohesion, all of the things that make life worth living, um, w- would be enormous. And I um, am of the opinion that it's not possible. Um, if you look at places that have been severely locking down, like um, the Peel region in Toronto, Toronto generally, essentially you've been in lockdown as hard as you can reasonably get before we start impacting on people's ability to feed themselves. Um, and it's not actually stopped transmission. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable thing to try. And if you're an isolated island in the Pacific, you have the shot of doing that. Um, I I suspect that in Australia and New Zealand got a little bit of a heads up because they're further away. Um, They were able to uh, more effectively control their borders. Um, There is a, for anybody coming in on by ship, there's a good period of time between leaving your port of um, exit and and arriving. Um, So they have a a number of advantages that we really don't have. By the time um, we got to the point where it was across all of our provinces, The chances that we're going to get to that without um a vaccine are exceedingly low
0: let's talk about vaccines for a minute here uh right now there's a lot of uh concerns i guess that people have over various vaccines we're hearing statistics that you know five or ten among a hundred thousand or a million or two million or whatever adverse reaction uh blood clots those sorts of issues Uh, what should people think about when they see those headlines
1: so I think we need to be aware, and, and this speaks to sort of the the general um, sense that we're not at risk for anything ever that, that society seems to have come to in the past 20 years. But remember, people get blood clots every year. Um, about one in a thousand people gets a blood clot per year. And so if you give five million doses of a vaccine, there will be blood clots. Um, The study looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine, in fact, there were there were, I believe, 12 blood clots in the several hundred thousand doses they used to study. um, But there were more in the control group than there were in the vaccine group. So there's things that happen just by chance um, that are unrelated to the vaccine and shouldn't make us worry. Um, But that's what our regulatory agencies are there to do. That's why there was a pause in the AstraZeneca vaccine in general vaccines are very safe. Certainly um, the initial study showed good safety of um, all the vaccines that have been um, deployed. Now what happens though and what we have to think about is the um, safety of the vaccine has to exceed the risk of the disease and that's where it's really important for us to understand to what degree any one individual or any group is at risk of disease. So um, if you take A vaccine that has for example a one in a million adverse event rate which would be sort of in line with what we see normally Um, if you have a five percent risk of death from disease that's an obvious benefit to you however if your risk of disease is one in two million you might not want to take the vaccine and so we need really detailed epidemiologic understanding of what your precise risk is so that when we get to the younger age groups we decide whether the vaccine offers more or less benefit than um not
0: being vaccinated i was attending his media press conference at one public health official was on and i was asking about will will children's sports be greenlit this summer outdoor sports soccer baseball and so forth and the official responded uh by by musing about vaccines and when they will or will not be available uh for for children and i i found it a rather odd response because well well, let me just ask you dr grant do, do kids even really need to get this vaccine is it that much of an issue
1: well, right, right now they can't get it because there's no vaccine approved for children. There, there may be a small group of children um, because of the nature of their medical illness um, where um, a qualified physician might look at the risk benefit and have a discussion with children's parents. But widespread vaccination of children, um, certainly based on the numbers I've seen, um, does not seem like um, a high priority.
0: So when we use phrases like vaccine passports, which I understand is a bigger debate to elsewhere in other countries here in Canada, there's not really discussion of formalizing that, but who knows, you know, anything could come into play. Uh, some, some jurisdictions mean it just in terms of this is what you will need to get on and off a of flight. Okay, fair enough. Others mean it more broadly. This is what you'll need uh, to go to the movie theater and so forth, or maybe even to, to show it when you enter a restaurant. What do you think of that idea that the people are going to need to show proof of vaccination to, to sort of return to living their lives?
1: I guess I would um, say that if we were going to do that, we should have done it on um, vaccines that prevent much more high mortality diseases. Hmm. So measles, for example, is um, an exceedingly high mortality disease. It has a 1% mortality rate with current medical care. If you look at um, places in the developing world, it has about a 10% mortality rate, especially uh, especially in children, but the reason adults don't get sick is because they've all had measles as children or or that have been vaccinated. So I, I don't know why this particular um, virus would be the virus on which we um, place that. From a medical professional point of view, I, I think that that severely impinges on the question of consent. We don't impose medical procedures on people who don't want them. That's sort of the inviolable nature of our own um, bodies and our own um, decision-making. But this would actually be tantamount to coercion. Um, So essentially, if you don't get this vaccine, you're not gonna be allowed to live your life normally. Um, From a philosophic point of view, I have significant concern about that. We've never done it before, and yet we have very high vaccination rates. So I, I don't see why it's necessary. If everyone else is vaccinated, um, who wants to be, um, they are protected from severe disease. So the need to force that on the 5 or 10% of people who, who choose not to get vaccinated for whatever reason um, strikes me as problematic. And, and that's not even talking about the people who um, can't get vaccinated for some medical reason.
0: Uh, speaking about uh, total compliance rates, one thing that I've always found a little odd over the past year there's been a number of different, you know, videos and stories out there of a person who for whatever reason didn't want to wear a mask in the grocery store, uh, you know, they said they had a medical exemption, they forgot the mask, they want to be conscientious objectors, maybe they're conspiracy theorists, I don't know. They said they didn't want to wear it and then you see them being hauled out by police and then they get into a scuffle and these people are being beaten by the cops and I think for not wearing the mask and I kind of think you know, what is our approach to some of these rules and and the enforcement from it? I think if we said, please wear a mask in store at this point, I think we'd probably have what 90% of people uh, actually doing it. And, you know, I wonder what what is the utility of this? You know, is it theater of all of this to bring out the police and to call the cops and you see someone not wearing the mask? I'm not so much focused on just the mask issue per se, but sort of all of these rules out there, where we have to have sort of 100% compliance. And uh, if one person doesn't go along, we have, we have very disproportionate uh, reactions. There's one barbecue joint in Toronto, it became, I think, an international story of a fellow who decided, well, I really want to keep the barbecue place open and so forth. And at, at the end, they brought in, I think, 100 police officers to shut it down. It was quite a scene.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, I have to say it's never historically been public health policy to enforce um, the same with um, course of measures. The one exception would be tuberculosis. So we, we Mm -hmm. do have the right, um, for somebody who has tuberculosis to, um, we can't force treatment on them, but we can uh, make them stay away from other people. So there is a precedent for it. Um, but we, we generally speaking get much further with, um, harm reduction and being encouraging. If you think about something like HIV, Um, we, we in fact, um, have legal precedent, uh, saying that, you know, we'd really like it if you wore a condom, please take all your antiretrovirals. Um, but when people have knowingly had unprotected sex with other people, we've said, well, that's not something that's not a role for the police.
0: Right.
1: So this is, um, and that, I think, I think we can both agree that that is much more, uh, personally damaging than a person who isn't wearing a mask. Uh, So it's something that I find confusing. I don't think that it's appropriate to use um, the police or uh, punishing fines or other um, uh, law uh, enforcement mechanisms to enforce public health policy. Uh, That's a personal opinion. Um, But um, it it certainly does become, it, it makes the whole discussion just that much more high stakes and, and as you say i think it's disproportionate to get beaten for not wearing a mask
0: dr grant where do we go next there's certainly a great deal of optimism that the pandemic will soon be behind us in terms of vaccines rolling out maybe not as great as we'd like them to be in canada but they're still happening and long-term care vaccinations are almost at like hundred percent and uh the death rate in ltc's has just dropped drastically from coronavirus Uh, while there are sort of third wave spikes, there there does seem to be optimism towards a light at the end of the tunnel. Then at the same time, I know we do have these fraught conversations, vaccine passports, and we see some doctors on television saying wearing masks for, you know, the foreseeable future and so forth. Where are we headed? What is the exit ramp?
1: Well, that's what we need as a society to sit down and discuss. We've not actually had a good societal, societal debate about what our goals are so it it, essentially a lot of the contention has been the zero covid versus the uh, peaceful coexistent sort of dichotomy now what do we want are you know are we as a society going to agree that we will continue everything we're doing until there are no detectable cases Um, that's something we could decide to do and if we do that then we have to have a long conversation about what that's going to cost us or do we say well once we have Um, everyone who wants a vaccine have a vaccine and be largely protected from adverse outcomes, do we then say, well, then, you know, that's what we care about. um, And we'll keep our eyes out for, you know, new variants that might be different or that might merit um, a different vaccine or a different strategy. Um, We have to have that conversation and we haven't, unfortunately, the people dominating that conversation are doing so in a way that um, really does gloss over the downsides of of either strategy.
0: Which path should we be pursuing? Uh,
1: In my opinion, I I think we need to move to peaceful coexistence. I don't think we're going to eliminate the virus. I think once we get to a point where those people at high risk are vaccinated, um, we stop spending our time worrying about case counts and more time looking at um, how we make sure that our kids get the education caught back up. Um, and that our healthcare system goes to a place where we don't end up overwhelmed every flu season um, in our uh, hospitals and our ICUs.
0: You mentioned earlier the HIV/AIDS pandemic, and I know there was a time in, in not too long ago history where there was no such thing as say an AIDS hospice. Then those things were created. The healthcare system, I guess, was was expanding uh, to deal with that challenge for for a number of decades. Are, are we going to have a time, are we going to have to accept the fact that for the next 10, 20, 30 calendar years or what have you, there will be, I, I don't know, you know, two or three hospital beds in each region, or I don't know what the number is of people who are dealing with severe coronavirus outcomes, and, and we just need to address that fact. Is is that something that, that's going to be happening in the endemic portion of this?
1: Oh, of course. And, but we do that every year with the, with the flu. I mean, we, we do everything we can to try and prevent the flu. We vaccinate our high-risk people, um, but like coronavirus flu adapts and changes every year um and we every year have numerous people in our hospitals and in our intensive care units with the flu so the um and it's not just the flu we have numerous other viruses that do the same thing we have human metanema we have respiratory syncytial virus um in the right population those can be devastating and we that's why we have hospitals to care for the sick um when they when they get ill with anything um, we're, we're there, uh, influenza and pneumonia are one of our number one killers, especially in the elderly age groups. So that's, that's not going away.
0: Dr. Jennifer Grant, you are a medical microbiologist, infectious diseases, physician in Vancouver, a clinical associate professor at the university of British Columbia. And we thank you so much for this great conversation. Thanks very much for your time. Well, th- thanks for having me. Full comment with Anthony Fury is a post media podcast. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Jennifer Grant. The host is Anthony Fury. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and telling your friends about us. Thank you for listening.